This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Marijuana is a big business in Colorado, with more than $135 million in legal sales in January alone. That same month, Attorney General Jeff Sessions threw a major scare into the industry. He announced he was rescinding a policy that allowed the cannabis industry to flourish in states that made it legal. Sessions is in Colorado, speaking at the Western Conservative Summit in Denver. Earlier today, he spoke with Ryan Warner by phone. Mr. Attorney General, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's good good to be with you. This week, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Vermont introduced a bill to legalize marijuana federally in states that have approved its use. Uh, This would mean the industry can access the federal banking system, which it can't do legally now. Uh, Senator Warren was quoted as saying, we just want the federal government to get out of the way. Uh, What are your thoughts on this bill? Well, it remains, uh, marijuana remains prohibited by federal law, and Congress uh, presumably will consider this. Cory Gardner on Elizabeth Warren legislation will be um, probably presented, and we'll see how far it goes and how much support there is. I just don't know. Um, But at this time, my view is clear that the federal law remains in effect nationwide, just like it does for heroin or cocaine. And that, um, of course, it's not the death-dealing drug in the same way that fentanyl or heroin is, but um, it remains on the books as a, a prohibited substance. What would you say that means for people in Colorado who are running dispensaries or grow houses or accessory businesses, you know, that provide HR support to the cannabis industry and are complying with state law. What would you tell them as they walk in each day, take the keys and open up the front door of their businesses? Well, I would tell them that I can't give them immunity. I can't guarantee that they are free from any consequences for an act that is contrary to United States law. Um, we've got priorities. Uh, uh, U.S. attorneys around the country have uh, uh, heavy demands on them. And we in the federal government have never prosecuted on any kind of regular basis small amounts of uh, marijuana. Our priorities are smuggling rings and uh, more deadly drugs normally. Isn't that pretty similar to the coal memo that you rescinded? Uh, the idea that you only have limited resources and you've got to prioritize. Um, and, and I'll note that Senator Cory Gardner uh, was going to hold up Justice Department nominees over this issue. He met with President Trump and got assurances, apparently, that a state like Colorado wouldn't be targeted for marijuana offenses. Were you a party to, to those negotiations at all? Well, um we we were not happy that our nominations for top Department of Justice positions were blocked. I got to tell you, that went was a, a frustrating time for us. But I know that uh, Senator Gardner cares about this. I was not a participant in the meetings he had at the White House. So I don't know the details of that, except to say that it remains clear that the uh, Cole memo has been withdrawn And the impact of that is essentially to make clear that we are not guaranteeing and cannot guarantee persons who uh, use or distribute marijuana are protected from federal prosecution. I don't think that's appropriate for me 
to, um, in effect, violate or neuter federal marijuana law. I don't think the substance personally is a good, healthy thing. I think people need to be careful in whatever we do when we talk about marijuana. We need to make clear, whether we legalize it or not, that it is not a good thing to consume. I think there's universal um, belief that it's uh, uh, particularly dangerous. And there may be some medical uses for it uh, in in proper doses, but um, fundamentally, it's just not a healthy thing, and particularly not healthy for young people. It does impact their developing brains. Let me follow up just on a, a few things. So after that meeting with Senator Gardner and President Trump, are you saying that no one came to justice and said, back off, that, that there was no change specifically in, in how your department will treat Colorado? No, I did not have a meeting with the president to discuss in detail uh, what his comments were. They were more about the potential uh, future legislation, as I recall it. And we were not ordered to um, do anything other than the policies that we intend to carry out nationally. A conservative member of Congress from Colorado, Republican Doug Lamborn, told us earlier this year that He might be in favor of rescheduling marijuana so that there can be more research into its potential health benefits. Uh, Again, cannabis now a Schedule One narcotic, as you've mentioned. I'll say that the Food and Drug Administration may approve a marijuana-based medicine to reduce epileptic seizures. And if that proceeds, I just wonder if it becomes somewhat inevitable that uh, cannabis, regardless of the form, gains some form of federal acceptance. Well, uh, yes, it can. You can have uh, uh, extracts from marijuana that uh, improve epilepsy treatment. I'm very open to that possibility. Haven't studied the data on it, but uh, to say that that's the same as suggesting that young people should uh, feel free to use marijuana every afternoon after school uh, is a big difference. Over the last week, the president has made at least two references to wishing he had chosen another attorney general. And this is in light of your recusal from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. I wonder what sorts of challenges those criticisms present in terms of your duties as AG. Well, you know, the good thing about uh, my relationship with the president is on the day-to-day work we do. We are in agreement that we need to end the illegality in our immigration system. We need to bring down uh, these opioid deaths that we've never seen before, 65,000 people dying last year from uh, overdose deaths. This is something we've never, ever seen before. He's declared it a national health crisis, which I agree. Uh, He's appointing great judges, and we're pleased to support him in that. So um, on the great issues of our day, it's um, uh, a pleasure for me to be able to support the president's agenda. So uh, what I hear in that answer is from day to day, even though your relationship is tenuous, difficult, it doesn't really matter? Well, I feel real good about what we're doing at the Department of Justice. Uh, We've got... uh, uh, real improvements in the FBI. We've got a new director, a new deputy director, a new legal counsel. The Department of Justice is stepping up our ability to reduce the rise in violent crime that surged in the last few years, to reduce the amount of prescription opioids uh, that are out there. 
it's, it is creating addictions that lead to heroin, that lead to fentanyl, that lead to death. We met, so, a, uh, we met a veteran recently who had been addicted to opioids, and uh, he, he found that cannabis was a nice replacement. Is it possible, perhaps, that, that marijuana might be an antidote to the opioid problem you talk about? That uh, argument is floated out there. I've not seen scientific results that would back that up. Uh, it continues to be said, but uh, we continue to see uh, tremendous amounts of death from these uh, opioids. There's no doubt about it. Immigration, I know, will feature prominently in your remarks at the Western Conservative Summit. There's a lot of backlash right now on your decision to separate parents from children, especially um, if there are folks seeking asylum in the United States. I wonder what you might tell them if they think that that's uh, a cruel act, especially for folks who might be fleeing violence. Well, look, you're not entitled to come to the United States and bring children with you and be given immunity. Um, from prosecution. That cannot be. It makes no sense. I, I think the, the separation so, is, is what they're pointing to. That. Not the that so that's, that's um, what has been occurring, in a sense, uh, because children were involved. Adults who brought them, not even sometimes their parents, uh, were not prosecuted. They were basically released into the country Children that come across the border are taken to their destination city, which may be Denver, it may be Boston, it may be New York. Uh, we pay for that. And essentially, the word has gotten out that if you come to the United States border and enter unlawfully with a child, uh, you have a very high chance of nothing happening to you and that you actually be admitted into the country. So we have to reverse that. And you can't... The, the uh, adults that are prosecuted do not get long sentences. They may be just a matter of a couple of weeks. They usually will plead guilty to the obvious offense of entering unlawfully, and uh, they are normally deported, and the children would go home with them. But with regard to immigrant children, they don't even go to the state juvenile centers. They go to the Health and Human Services uh, to be treated and taken care of in a very high level. We provide them education. We provide them exercise. We provide them medical treatment. That's a very expensive process. Let, let me ask you point blank here. Are you saying that the United States is using the separation of families as a deterrent? No, I, I think it. Uh, what we're saying is if you don't prosecute the adults who violate the law, then you are saying we have open borders in this country for anyone who brings a child with them to the United States. And that cannot be. And we have to be serious about this. Mr. Attorney General, thanks for your time. Thank you. Good to be with you. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, speaking with my colleague Ryan Warner. Sessions speaks today at the Western Conservative Summit in Denver. Well, legalizing pot across the U.S. is still an open debate, Canada is on its way to making recreational pot legal. It's the first G7 country to do so, and sales could begin as soon as the end of this summer. Colorado got a half-decade head start legalizing recreational pot, but experts say Canadian businesses will have huge advantages over your local pot shop. 
Paul Seaborn is a professor in the business school at DU and an expert on the marijuana industry. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Colorado was the first to sell legal recreational cannabis. Uh, We have one of the most mature and sophisticated markets. Canada hasn't even started to sell its recreational marijuana yet. Uh, How could it possibly surpass Colorado? Well, the, the unique thing about Canada is they're doing it in a more national, coordinated way. And so that opens up a lot of opportunities and reduces a lot of the barriers that our Colorado companies face. So things like access to banking, uh, access to capital, even being publicly traded, uh, and certainly much more favorable tax treatment. So those those factors alone have already given Canadian companies a real boost that I think uh, companies here would look at quite enviously. And, and we'll look at all of those here in a moment. But I want to talk first about uh, here in Colorado, cannabis businesses have struggled to keep bank accounts, to secure loans. Uh, the idea that a marijuana store could have all those services open to them would be transformative, it seems. Yeah, a big challenge here in our state is a company, even one that's fairly successful, is really just one unexpected expense or disruption away from potentially going out of business. They just don't have that um, buffer or the, the usual resources that a normal business could to reach out to in those times of trouble. Uh, and so, again, these Canadian companies are, are really being welcomed and approved by the federal government in a way that, that puts them on a, a more... Uh, level playing field with other types of firms. And, and of course, one place we hear there's difficulty is taxes here in Colorado. Uh, effectively, the tax rate here can be upwards of 70% on a, on a business because they don't have access to deductions by the IRS and things like that. How would legalization in Canada impact taxing the drug there? These businesses will be treated like any other. The federal tax system doesn't make any um, carve out to not allow deductions for you know various business expenses. So it's really just a, a standard business, no special treatment. Uh, and so that, that's just one of a number of factors that's giving them some advantages over Colorado. So what are the concerns from Canadians about the fact that this may not be legal in the U.S., but it could be legal here in terms of taxing, in terms of uh, uh, security, things like that? Yeah. So Canada's going through a lot of the same debates that, that we in Colorado had around the time of Amendment 64 and, and the subsequent changes. You know, lots of uncertainty around whether they want to be the first country that embraces this fully, uh, what happens when Canadians cross the border and are asked questions. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're in that uh, early stages, lots of uncertainty, lots of uh, confusion. But at the same time, it's that federal coordination that, that they have that is not really on the horizon here quite yet in the U.S. I've read that uh, Colorado lawmakers have been working to allow public trading for marijuana businesses, but I understand that isn't even a problem in, in Canada. Yeah, the irony is that we have two Canadian companies that are now trading on the major U.S. stock exchanges. So Kronos Group uh, showed up on the NASDAQ in February. And just on May 24th, uh, another company, Canopy Growth, uh, began trading on the New York Stock Exchange. So we have Canadian companies trading in the U.S., And meanwhile, we've got a couple of U.S. companies, uh, MedMen would be one, not really big in Colorado, but elsewhere in our country, um, that have found a way to trade on a Canadian stock exchange. And so so it's a really ironic situation to have these these capital flows going across the border, and yet uh, no Colorado company to date has really been able to access any of those public markets. Yeah. If Canada uh, makes recreational marijuana legal, could there be any – there wouldn't be trading across the border but with with uh, Colorado. Is that correct? That's correct. But in the meantime, the trading will happen with other countries, and it's already happening on the medical side. So you've got Canadian companies uh, supplying medical customers in Germany and other parts of Europe. Already. Already. And you know, making investments and partnerships in Australia. Uh, and over time, should other countries join this recreational 
uh, market, those same opportunities would arise for Canadian companies. So that's really, I think, where a lot of the investment interest in Canadian firms comes. Not so much because of the size of Canada. It's about 35 million uh, people, maybe similar to, to California. But if it's a, a way to access the world market when the U.S. firms are still unable to participate, that's obviously a huge uh, factor. I'm assuming Colorado, since it's been doing it for so long, uh, the, these these business owners have expertise. They can maybe turn that into a revenue thing as opposed to the actual cannabis itself. So, I mean, is that a business that you could see sprouting up if, if legal uh, recreational marijuana comes to Canada? Yeah, and it's already happened. So, you know, our, our leading Colorado companies are advising uh, entrants in other states and, and pursuing those opportunities themselves. There are some partnerships in place between Colorado companies and those in Canada. But uh, the distinction that you make is the key. The expertise, the the intellectual property, all the learnings, those can flow across borders, whether it's state or national. The product is is not allowed to leave Colorado. And, and so that's obviously uh, makes it for a very interesting challenge. You know, a question in the long term will be whether Colorado remains a leader in a lot of those areas or, uh, or whether those people and those ideas and those experts um, kind of migrate to another location, whether it is California or or Canada or somewhere else. So that's to say they would leave Colorado and go somewhere else where, where things are a little bit more open? Yeah, I think you know a lot of the expertise they have is because of what Colorado allowed under Amendment 64. But in in some areas, whether it's social consumption or maybe um, ways to get minorities into the business, you know, our state is not particularly um, you know leading at this time. And so, if another jurisdiction cracks some of those um, tough problems, you know, that that's going to create another source of expertise, and it may or may not be here. So, are there other states in the U.S. that are doing that? Yeah, I think, you know, again, all these other locations benefit from Colorado being first. And I think they're very appreciative of all the trial and error and, and discussion and debate that's happened. And so we have seen, you know, in Oakland, California programs to make sure that uh, minority groups have a role in an industry. You know, not that Colorado purposely excluded those folks, but you know, there were so many other priorities on the table to be addressed that I think that uh, wasn't explicitly uh, focused upon. Uh, and then the same way in Canada, I think they've they've learned a lot from the various U.S. states that have gone first, and they're able to to be a little more uh, thoughtful about some issues like social consumption or uh, impaired driving, based on whatever has been learned from other places. And this hasn't been just a a two or three year discussion for Canada, right? It's been going on for quite a long time, right? Yeah. So uh, really, a similar path to Colorado: start with medical uh, access first, and then eventually moving now into recreational. But even at that medical stage, it was a national system, uh, Health Canada, which would be the equivalent of the FDA, uh, reviewing and approving each cultivator, uh, and the the means of purchase all through mail order. So up until now, a Canadian with a medical card would uh, go to a website pick out a product, have it come to their home, pretty uninvasive to the rest of society. The big change that you, you reference coming up soon will be uh, recreational where uh, you'll see storefronts popping up. And some of those will be private the way that we see them in Colorado, operated by private businesses. Others will actually be government stores, you know, the same way that many Canadian provinces and a, th- a few remaining U.S. states um, retail liquor. Colorado U.S. Senator Cory Gardner is negotiating a deal for a bill to legalize marijuana federally in states that allow it. Uh, that would be a major step if that became law, right? Uh, yes and no, I think. Uh, folks I've talked to definitely see that as the most uh, feasible path to making some changes with the federal government in the U.S., but it would be a less far-reaching approach than to actually have a federally uh, legal system. So you know, my sense is that that would probably preserve Colorado's role as a leader within our U.S. states, right? because there'll be a big 
uh, chunk of the country that will remain illegal until they change their state law. But what it wouldn't do is really open up any of those opportunities that are taking place in the rest of the world to Colorado companies or any other U.S. companies for that matter. So it would it would definitely make things easier for day-to-day business uh, in any state that's legalized, but it doesn't really open up uh, international options the way um, the Canadian approach is going to do very quickly. So they couldn't export or things like that. That's right. Yeah, that's not really on the horizon uh, for any U.S. company at this time. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Paul Seaborn is a business professor at University of Denver who studies the marijuana industry. A new center dedicated to Colorado women's history is open in Denver. It tells the stories of women who fought to get the vote in the 1800s to those who helped put Mesa Verde National Park on the map. Jillian Allison directs the new Center for Colorado Women's History. She spoke with us in March. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. And I want to start with Ellis Meredith, a powerful force in making Colorado the second state in the nation to give women the vote. Uh, I think most of us, though, have not heard of her. Tell us more about Ellis Meredith. Uh, She was a journalist, and uh, she was interested in going beyond the vote. She saw that not as a starting point or as the end point, but the starting point uh, for women. She was interested in taking Colorado's story and taking it to the nation. She testified and wrote about the experience of Colorado women and their opportunities to vote and wanted to take that opportunity and spread it to women across the the country. I imagine that other places might have been wary of giving women the vote, and she saw it as her role to say the sky didn't fall and <laughs> things might have even gotten a little better. Absolutely. Um, people were saying, are women even voting? Are they coming out? And she was showing them that women in Colorado were voting at higher rates than men in some areas. Oh, wow. um, women um, and men were saying, we don't have time for that. Um, and she thought, It's not a luxury that all women have to say it's optional to vote. Um, They may have struggles in their lives that they're going to take the time for. She's known sometimes as the Susan B. Anthony of Colorado. Yes. um, And she met Susan B. Anthony at the um, 1893 World's Fair. um, And that's the same year that women in Colorado got the right to vote, um, long before women across the nation. Do you think that she was instrumental in convincing other places around the country to roll forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is Ellis Meredith. Why create a center for women's history? And and why now? Well, we are so excited to have the opportunity to do this now. Um, We saw in some of the program that we were doing at the Byers Evans House, which is the home of the Center for Colorado Women's History, that stories about women were really resonating with people. Um, Once we started to introduce programs about Colorado women, um, people were coming back um, and visiting more often. And these were stories that people wanted to hear and see. And so we're looking for more opportunities to do that. And this is not just women sort of in the history books, but those working today. You'd like to tell a modern story as well, a contemporary story. Yes, absolutely. We're looking to um, engage people in a conversation and bring those stories from the past into the present. So the center is housed in the Byers Evans House Museum. It's an 1800s mansion furnished with ornate decor that belonged to one of Denver's wealthiest families a century ago. And there are items used by some of the women on the house staff like a hand-cranked vacuum cleaner. It sounds a lot like indigestion. (laughs) 
I don't think I knew before this that there were hand crank vacuums, but of course there would have to be before the onslaught of electricity in homes. Tell us about the housekeeper who used that vacuum, what she would have done to operate that appliance, because her story is one you're telling. Yes. So Esther Allspach was uh, the maid sorry, in the World War One era. And with that vacuum, uh, you have a set of handles. So one is stationary and the other you pull out. Okay. And when you pull out, it uh, raises up and actually creates the vacuum. Creates the vacuum effect, yes. Yes, yes. And so that's the sound that you're hearing. The louder sound is the suction of the vacuum, and then I'm pressing it back in when the quieter sound happens. Why did you want to tell that story and her story? Well, it's important to um, talk about, you know, the women who were at the big fancy dining room table, but also the women who were behind the scenes, because without all of those women, um, you know, this history wouldn't have been made and possible. And I think it's important that we tell stories that everyone can see themselves in. Um, Esther's family has come back and told us um, stories about her time there. Um, So it was clearly important to them, and it's important to the visitors that come see us as well. Okay, we're talking about the new Center for Colorado Women's History in Denver. And before we let you go, how about one more story about the doctor who was the first woman to lead Denver General Hospital, what we now know as as Denver Health. Dr. Rose Kidbeer was working in um, Durango as a young mother of children. She was a widow, and she received a letter from her father um, when the Spanish War started. He was lamenting the fact that it was the first war that their family wasn't going to be able to serve in because he was too old, her children were too young, and she took that as a call to action. Huh. So she convinced the head of the armed forces in San Francisco to send her. Um, she wanted to go as a doctor, and he refused. So she went as a nurse, um, and she was appalled by the food that the soldiers I just want to be clear. She, she had been trained as a doctor. She, yes, she but, was a doctor. But they said, I'm sorry, you can only go as a nurse. That's the women's place. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's right. the only role you can serve as, as, as a nurse. So she went um, and she she saw this food that they were getting served that was deteriorating their health. It was disgusting. So she served the officers the worst, most foul food she could find so that they would make a change. Okay. <laughs> And then she came back to Denver and was was the head of Denver General Hospital. I see. And I imagine the quality of the food changed rather quickly. Yes. Once the officers <laughs> were forced to eat the gruel. Yes. Okay. Are there just lots of other stories you want to tell? And I imagine it's just endless. It is. And there are some that, you know, I'm sure we don't even know about yet, which is why we want to involve people in the conversation, um, hear stories that, you know, maybe we don't know about, hidden stories, unknown histories. Yeah. And it can be people who may be in the history books. And as you say, who may have been serving those who appear in the history books. Jillian, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jillian Allison directs the new Center for Colorado Women's History in Denver. She spoke to us in March. And that's our show. Thanks for joining us on listener-supported CPR News. It's the last day of our membership drive. Take two minutes right now and support the news you rely on by becoming a member. CPR.org or 1-800-496-1530. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.